are listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. This is the Warrior Priest Podcast, Season 1, Episode 1. We are your hosts, Bill Winter. Hello. (laughs) And I am Donovan Riley, and we are the Warrior Priests. Some say that self-preservation is the strongest instinct of all, not only in humans, but in all animal life. Fear of death, the imperative to survive. Nature has implanted this in all living creatures. The warrior ethos evolved to counter the instinct of self-preservation. Against this natural impulse to flee from danger, specifically from an armed and organized human enemy, The warrior ethos enlists three other equally innate and powerful human impulses. Shame, honor, and love. And that is section five, the instinct of self-preservation from Stephen Pressfield, the warrior ethos, which you can actually get through Black Irish Press, which I think is a really cool name for a publisher right it's a boxing glove with black irish on it i like that white irish blonde irish by way of (laughs) certain nordic peoples making stopovers in northern ireland on their way to iceland and greenland Mm -hmm. as i explain to people uh there are black irish and then there are people that look like me six foot two blonde blue-eyed light complexion there's a reason, and it has nothing to do with Irish genetics. <laughs> <laughs> I also joke with my wife, Annie, because she's Norwegian uh, by heritage. I said, if we go back far enough, I'm pretty sure your cousin uh, raped one of my ancestors. <laughs> or vice versa. Or vice versa, exactly. Yeah. Got here. <laughs> yep. So shame, honor, and love. <clears throat> the, the powerful human, innate human impulses that, at least according to Pressfield, essentially constitute the warrior ethos. So first on that list then is shame. Right. Yeah. Essentially shame is the feeling that you are, because I struggled with this for years myself growing up in an abusive household and uh, being the son of a Vietnam vet who struggled with profound PTS from his two tours in Vietnam. Shame is essentially believing that you are garbage, that you are a mistake, that you don't really have a purpose or meaning. You don't matter. You're not worthy of love. You're not worthy of people's attention. Uh, You're, yeah, you're just nothing. And out of that shame then manifests things like fear and then anger, which is a manifestation of fear, guilt, blame, these types of aspects, but they, the root of it is still shame. You know, uh, Brene Brown, she's uh, based out of Texas. She does a lot of work with shame and vulnerability. Um, She showed up for a while there on Oprah's show, Oprah's book club. She's written lots of books on vulnerability and it's, it was helpful for me and my wife to, to delve into that and really get to the root of it. The only kind of criticism that both of us had at the end of the day is that great shame. Now what? (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do I do with that? How do yeah. you build from that and stop feeling like a piece of garbage or stop feeling like you're a mistake mm-hmm. or an accident or you don't have any meaning or purpose? And, you know, again, for the sake of transparency for the listener, 
I am a pastor and became a Christian after being an atheist. Uh, so I'm an adult convert. And that's another wrinkle to this then. That's kind of the point of the podcast, talking about conflict and belief is growing up and being an atheist because, well, many reasons. My dad's an atheist. He was a, a Christian before the war. And then during the war, that kind of got blown out of him, literally. Mm-hmm. Watching one of his best friends from basic get vaporized in front of him. Um, did it for him. He's kind of like Ivan Karamazov and Ivan's atheism. It's not that, as Ivan says to his brother Alyosha in the Brothers Karamazov, it's not that I don't believe in God. It's just that I've returned the ticket because Mm. I can't accept, based on what I've seen, what I've experienced, I cannot accept that God is good or gracious or even really cares, essentially. Yeah. Or I refuse to acknowledge and believe in that God. And it's my dad to a certain extent. And so I struggled with that. And But shame was at the root of that. And as Pressfield points out, though, you know, these natural impulses to flee from danger, primarily being shame, why flee from danger? What, it, what role does shame play in that? Well, what's it matter? And also just this feeling of like, as I said, when I started martial arts, the reason I started martial arts is I was sick and tired of being afraid of everything. I grew up being afraid of my dad and, and other men who abused me. I grew up being afraid because uh, we moved all the time. So I was always the new kid. So I was always being bullied and picked on. I was afraid of that, uh, afraid of not fitting in, afraid of not being loved, everything that goes with that. And then when I grew up and got married and had kids, being afraid of not being able to protect my wife and kids, not being able to provide for them and so forth. And finally, after 20 some years, just saying, you know what? I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And that's when I started martial arts and really confronted that fear. But like I said, really, shame is one thing. But then when you add God or belief in a deity on top of that, it almost makes it an unbearable weight. Because one, you already believe you're a mistake or you're garbage. And then to believe that there's a deity that created you to essentially be garbage Mm -hmm. (laughs) makes it that much worse. Compound Mm -hmm. that. Yeah, and that's that's a really fair point. That's um, <clears throat> uh, again disclosure. Then for the listeners, um, I'm not a martial artist nor a pastor um, yet. I am a veteran, though. Oh gosh, yet <laughs> I am at a uh, seminary right now for some reason. Um, <clears throat> the military didn't do enough damage to your psyche. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, I think, though, uh, when it comes to shame, it would be helpful to define the difference between individual shame, mm-hmm. as we see more in the West and corporate, yes. as we see um, places like Japan or uh, China, um, but also the U.S. military. Mm-hmm. Um, and corporate shame um, is the tool that Pressfield is really drilling down on here mm-hmm. um, in these types of warrior cultures. Uh, I would imagine it's the same in martial arts. Um, it is the group that kind of foists this shame upon the person to get them to conform. Right. And this can be very helpful. If you are afraid of being shamed by your squad or platoon or, um, you know, sparring partners, uh, whatever it is, you are more likely to um, 
strive to meet and exceed the standards of that group. Right. Um, yeah. In this, <clears throat> go ahead. No, I cut you off. I was going to say Pressfield makes the point uh, further in this book, and we'll get to it eventually. Mm -hmm. That within tribalism, there's shame culture and there's guilt culture. Yeah. And shame yeah. culture, like you said, is the fear of letting down the, the community, the tribe, the people to your left and to your right. A guilt culture is more individualistic. It's more mm -hmm. about trespassing the rule, trespassing the law, and the individual consequence or the consequence for the individual in a guilt culture is greater than in a shame culture where it's more the community is affected or the tribe is affected or the squad, as you noted. Mm -hmm. And yes, it, it's, that's the thing within, at least w within Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu, and when, which I train primarily is, it's a merit-based system. What you put into it is what you get out of it. And then the intangibles though are respect, integrity, uh, helpfulness, showing up for your training partner, um, being a humble, that's a really front and center, especially as an instructor uh, for myself, hum humility and not creating this structure in which I'm over you and you are subordinate to me, but rather as one person put it to me, if the student fails, it's because the teacher failed the student. And if the teacher fails, it's because the student fails the teacher. And essentially it is, it's we're, we're all rowing in the same direction. And if one person stops rowing, we start going in circles. Um, Xenophon then, uh, a good segue into uh, this little section yeah. from Cyrus the Great. Right. Uh, Xenophon then talks about this obedience that comes not from compulsion. And in this context, He's, he's talking about leading soldiers right. into this war against Assyria. But the, the point here is that the way this, this shame worked was as a bulwark for those who are not going to obey by themselves right right so you you had this way that uh you know private joe isn't going to obey the rules and so he's going to be shamed mm -hmm. everyone else is going to see this and go oh man i i don't want that to happen to me right well we were just talking before we went on air about band of brothers both the book yeah and yeah there is a moment there following or during was it during the battle no, it was after the battle when Winters goes to check on, he goes to get treated for a, a shrapnel wound to his, his calf. Mm, mm -hmm. And he goes in there and there's a soldier, a private sitting in the corner and he's blind. He's shell-shocked, essentially. Uh, yeah, the hysterical blindness. Right, hysterical blindness. And he can't, his mind can't cope with what's happening around him. And yeah. Winters talks to him. And again, it's not and I think Winters talks about this in his biography, it wasn't a matter of I needed to say, you know, snap out of it and be a man, man up and get back uh, out to the front line because people are depending on you. But rather it was, well, we'll send you back to the rear. We'll send you away yeah. from this. Shame. Yeah. And what was his name? Private? Um... Uh, Blythe. 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 Yeah, Blythe. Yeah, we were struggling to yeah. figure that out earlier. But the, the thing that got Blythe back in the game and actually in real life ended up, he ended up becoming a war hero and, and leading men in Korea and being, uh, receiving numerous medals, I believe for his bravery. But in that moment, what really shocked him back to reality was the fact that he would be shipped out and 
his brothers um, would die and it would be his fault. And he couldn't live with that. And it wasn't guilt that, that got him up. It was shame. It was that if I'm not here and I'm not with them and they die, that's my fault. Mm-hmm. That's on me. I let them down. And yeah. I can do that. And the point too, then that the, the fear that is often categorized as cowardice mm-hmm. and to your point, and we'll dive into Cyrus the Great here in a second by Xenophon is to recognize that it's not cowardice, but fear that drives men to run away from the fight. And therefore, how do you harness that fear, curb that fear and utilize that actually as a resource? Like I said, with me going, joining martial arts and starting martial arts of saying, you know what, I'm done being afraid. I'm done wondering if I'm brave. I'm, I'm done wondering if I have courage and I need to find a venue. In, you know, I need a truth filter that's going to show me once and for all, am I a coward who's lying to himself about being courageous and brave and having a warrior spirit? Or do I truly have a warrior spirit and where can I test myself so that I can find out, I can discover this for myself. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's the venue is, is mixed martial arts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think <clears throat> it, it kind of a question of nature versus nurture here. But I think in a lot of ways that warrior spirit, as you're describing, is something that is built. Sure. Um, which is to say, it is not something uh, always inherent in every individual. So there are some who are naturally um, uh, warriors, if you will, whereas there are others that have to be made warriors. Right. Right. Um, a example I think would be good would be um, my uh, brother-in-law. Uh, he was a ranger. He's a cop now, you know, just hard charging guy, right? Yeah. He has two sons, one of which is, um, <laughs> let's say, not a, a natural born warrior. Not a whereas the... It, <laughs> No. Um, whereas the other, I mean, stands up and punches 90 pound dogs in the face because they're coming over to take his peanut butter sandwich. Wow. You know, and this is at age three. It's just instinctual for him. (laughs) Um, to the one that is not, does not have this same, uh, instinctual disposition. Um, I suspect that he could nevertheless be made um to have that disposition and that comes with the testing that you described right um and whether it's martial arts or you know uh, uh military service whatever what these things inculcate is that disposition yeah um and i think therapy almost uh well actually yeah yeah that um yeah, that's a good point. Um, well, I think of that in, in this is what piqued this is that I see this more often and not than in striking Muay Thai and, and Dutch kickboxing, which I'm involved with, which is there are some guys that come in and they're just ready to bang. They will spar, they'll take shots and they'll be like, that was fantastic. That was great. You know, let's do mm-hmm. it. They don't care about technique. They don't care about warming up. They just love it. <laughs> but that's the minority. That That's the one percenters, so to speak. And mm-hmm. the majority of people like myself, it's, you're not programmed 
to your point about nature versus nurture, you're not programmed to punch people in the face yeah, or kick people or stand there and take it and then say, thank you. Can I have another? <laughs> and I talked with a friend of mine who's an MMA fighter. And I said this to her, I said, you know, it's really hard for me for some reason I can kick people. doesn't bother me, but punching people in the face really bothers me. And a part of that for me was hmm. when I'm rolling and I'm sparring and rolling, I can feel 20%, 60%, 100%. I can feel the, the, the level of violence that we're engaged in because we're body to body. We're in, we're on the ground. Whereas in striking, I can't really, it's not the same immediate tactile response. And therefore I feel like I'm going 40%, but then I just notice how your head snapped back and your eyes kind of rolled up. Maybe for you, that wasn't 40%. Um, how do you gauge that when you don't, you're not, don't have experience yet to, to control that, that violence. And yet the more you do it. And so what my instructor did to help me and others is we did technical sparring where we would just do hands or just do feet or just do clinch work or just do defensive work and then build up slowly week by week and say, okay, this week we're going to, you're going to play defense. You're going to play offense for three minute rounds. Go, you're going to defend, you're going to attack it, but just, just strikes. Then you add in the counters and then you add in, like I said, the knees and the clinches and then slowly, but surely you build yourself up and through that exposure to the sparring, you become more comfortable sparring until finally you can say, okay, we're going to spar three minute rounds for the next hour. And it, yeah, you normalize the violence, so to speak. You normalize the, the pain. You normalize all of these things so that you can say to yourself, what's the worst that can happen? You get a bloody nose. You get a black eye. Uh, you separate your shoulder, in my case, because you get swept under your head. And you didn't, <laughs> you didn't know that was one of the rules we weren't going to follow. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, it is, yeah, it's being exposed to a situation that you're uncomfortable or afraid of. And, or going back to the whole shaming of it is on the one hand, all of my teammates are looking at me, waiting for me to, to take my spot. And therefore I can't, you know, chicken out, so to speak, and go sit on the sidelines and go, oh, I only train with a guy over there that I know always goes 10%. <laughs> but on the other hand too, you then have to overcome that fear. You have to overcome that overriding voice in your head that says, this is a terrible thing to do. This is a terrible decision. You need to get out of here now. Nothing good can come of this. And it's that constant fight then, as we noted in the section, this is about the in instinct for self-preservation. And what, whatever the fight is, even if it's the fight of just getting your, putting your feet on the floor every morning when you get out of bed, the fight to go into work, the fight to communicate with your spouse rather than ignore each other and just hope it gets better, there is that instinct for self-preservation and, and the inherent need to be in control. And to be able to predict the outcome, write the script, as some people call it, versus jumping into Cyrus and Xenophon's biography of Cyrus, which this edition that we are reading from, for those of you listening, is The Arts of Leadership and War, edited by Larry Hedrick. And Larry Hedrick is a former Air Force officer, military historian, um, who loves Xenophon as much as probably we do. And I find this a very readable um, edition of Xenophon's work. I recommend going and reading Xenophon too, uh, because uh, Hedrick does paraphrase some sections and try and make it readable. But I like the structure of the book because he does break it down into subheadings and uh, makes it more digestible. So diving in then to book two, Advice Fit for Royalty, page 17. Um, and uh, what Hedrick did too, is he changed all the third person pronouns to first person pronouns to make it more of a biographical anecdotal account of Cyrus's life. 
my father went on asking, do you understand the basic reason why followers stay loyal to their leaders? So this is uh, Cyrus's father, Cambyses, or Cambyses, depending on how you want to pronounce the Greek. And Cambyses is a king, and he is riding with his son in the army. Essentially, his son's going to Medea to meet with his uncle, Caesaris, and with Caesaris's or Caesaris's help, and military help, hopefully then they're able to march basically right up to the gates of Babylon, or at the very least, chase away the Assyrians. That's essentially what Cambyses and uh, Caesaris they just want Cyrus to kind of go up north and secure the border. And Cyrus, though, secretly has bigger plans than just securing the border. Oh, much bigger. Right. And a <clears throat> uh, contextual note here, Assyria and Babylon at that time were the superpowers oh, in that region of the world. Right. Yes. To march against them was pretty ballsy. That would be like Syria attacking chi China, essentially. <laughs> The Mouse That Roared, another book, if you ever want to read a really fun book. It's a satire, but it's The Mouse That Roared about a very small island that decides the best way to kind of pull themselves out of poverty is to just attack a really large country and then surrender as soon as they invade. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, they made a movie about it with Peter Sellers back in the 60s, and the movie's hilarious too. Because what ends up happening, actually, I won't ruin it for you if you want to read it, but it's hilarious because essentially they're like, well, we'll invade them the superpower, and then they will counter invade us, they'll counterattack, and then we'll surrender. It'll be perfect. And then a whole bunch of hijinks ensue <laughs> as a consequence. It's a great book, though, The Mouse. <laughs> and that's essentially, yeah, this is Cyrus saying, we're the mouse, and Assyria Babylon, which they have Spartan mercenaries, they have uh, Numidian cavalry, they have, you know, modern-day Afghanistan. Um, what were they called? Uh, it just escaped me. I just finished reading um, the, uh, uh, Virtues of War about Alexander the Great, too. It'll come to me. But it's, yeah, putting the known world serves in the military for the Assyrians. Yeah. Yeah. So Cambyses then is asking, do you understand the basic reason why followers stay loyal to their leaders? Do you know the basic reason why followers desert their leaders? Quote, the loyalty of followers comes from self-interest, I readily replied. When they determine that their leader is no longer acting in their self-interest, their sense of loyalty collapses. So, the first thing you have to do is ensure that everyone who serves you enjoys high morale and good health. Are you prepared to do that? Yes, Father, I assured him. My own words and deeds will bolster their morale and for good health, an excellent staff of surgeons and physicians will come out with the army. Cambyses replied, when soldiers are sick or wounded, doctors can fix them up. But you've got to save them from falling ill in the first place. If you are planning to camp along in one place, you've got to find a healthy site. And even as you are working to ensure the health of your army, you must remember to take care of your own. Just so, I agreed. And my first rule is to avoid overeating. My next is to stay trim and strong by working off all the energy that food lends to my body. And that is the first section of book two, Advice Fit for Royalty. And the, <clears throat> the point to get back to this, this shame issue that we're covering right now is that this shame culture can only go so far to motivate. 
Right. While it serves as a bulwark, the first issue at hand is the fact that obedience has to come voluntarily. Right. The reliance on uh, a law, as it were, will not produce the type of obedience, will not produce the type of discipline required right. to ultimately get the job done. It's That's, a fail-safe. I was going to say that the, the limitations of any law is the threat of violence that reinforces that law, that makes it vital, that make, gives it veracity. And once you get to a certain point where threats of violence no longer appeal to the person, like he says, they'll just break ranks and run. Because the, it, it, there's a point where, I think if I remember this right, and we'll probably get to this as we read through the book in further episodes, there's one point where it's 50,000 versus 3 million. And the way that Cyrus rallies his own troops and raises their morale is, is explaining most of their army is being forced to serve in their army. And if we just charge and we do this smart, most of the army will break and run at the first sight of trouble. At, at our aggression, they'll break. And they do. And in fact, as they go, a lot of Cyrus's army is from the Assyrian army. It's just folks saying, listen, we're only serving the Assyrians because we're being forced to. But now that you're here, we're going to throw our lot in with you. And Cyrus's point is like, if I treat you as friends and respect you and, and I'm kind to you and promise not to subject you to my uh, iron-handed rule, you'll stay loyal to me. Versus the Assyrians and especially the prince who takes over for his dad, who's really, really a jerk. Um, they have no loyalty to him because even his friends, he impales with spears because he gets jealous of their hunting prowess. Or he has, he has somebody, he has, a, he has a guy castrated just to make a point. And it's like, yeah, you can't instill loyalty in folks by castrating them or impaling them because you're frustrated with their, their, their performance. Well, and we see the same thing in uh, Herodotus's description of the Battle of Thermopylae. Yes. One of the reason that the Greeks there were so effective is they were there voluntarily, whereas it got so bad for the invading Persians that their officers had to break out whips to right. drive their men forward. Yeah. This is why many of the... Um, uh, gangs and uh, criminal organizations, say here in the U.S., but also around the world, are unrulable under modern judicial systems. These people aren't afraid of going to jail. Right. They're not afraid to be handcuffed or pepper sprayed. Right. And so they are not going to follow the rules because the law does not have the teeth required to make them fear mm -hmm. breaking the rules. Yeah, right. Yeah. So that's the thing then, is that if you're going to be a good leader versus a bad leader, morale and health are essential. In fact, I don't think I've read a, a military history book centered around a specific leader that that wasn't at the core of when they talk about discipline and yeah. how to lead. And being a good leader is one, lead by example. And two, physical fitness is essential, taking care mm -hmm. of yourself. How can you take care of your troops if you can't take care of yourself? And how are you supposed to lead from the front if you can't keep up and set the example? And how are you supposed to inspire and encourage the person to the left and to the right of you if you yourself aren't willing to take your lumps and put yourself in the same situation that they're in? 
and it's the same thing uh, in sparring for example or in fighting you got to put yourself out there you can't and this is something that people talk about quite often in combat martial arts is if should you have to compete should you have to fight as a part of your training is it necessary especially if you want to be an instructor especially there's especially old school folks will say in brazilian jiu-jitsu for example you you shouldn't be allowed to get a black belt if you've never competed or you shouldn't be allowed to train and teach others if you yourself have not trained and fought because what can but the other side of it as my instructor has said is oftentimes fighters don't make the best teachers and as he said to me, I don't need the best fighter to be the Muay Thai instructor. I need the best teacher to be the Muay Thai instructor. And also then at a certain point, um, because we don't necessarily live in a warrior culture here in the United States anymore, you're not raised from the womb essentially to be a hunter-gatherer and a warrior. You don't go through a rite of passage when you hit puberty that translates you from childhood into that warrior culture and therefore i think this is a part of the emptiness that i felt for all those years was and the, why the fear was so overwhelming is i had no form in which to prove myself i was in sports in high school basketball and track um in junior high i was in football and elementary school i was in wrestling but to me it wasn't uh, it just it wasn't a proving ground it wasn't the thing especially basketball and track because it's really not a contact sport you're not really being tested in the way that wrestling and football might test you. Uh, and so going to college, I just, I didn't, that was an emptiness that I, that I struggled with inside of me and I couldn't really express it at the time. But going back to, uh, you, you see so many people now in their late thirties and early forties, mid forties, even, and even into their fifties, discovering martial arts now, especially women actually. And although it's still probably 95%, at least in my academy and the academies that I've gone to, 95% men, the women that come in too are looking for a place to test and prove themselves. And the reasons and the motives might be different or the experiences might be different. But at the core, it's still that feeling of shame. It's still that fear and that sense of, I, I don't know in a crisis situation whether or not I'm going to be able to stand up for myself, take care of myself. And it doesn't have to be a physical confrontation. It could be in the boardroom. It could be in the home. It could be at church. It could be at school, wherever it might take place at. But are you prepared? Can you speak for yourself? Can you stand on your integrity? Can you be true to your word? Or will you surrender and retreat and allow others to steamroll you? Take credit, for example, of, of the successes that, that happened. Versus, as uh, I think Jocko talks about this constantly on his podcast, Jocko Willink podcast, good leaders always take responsibility for when things go wrong, and they always point to those who are responsible for the success. They don't claim success for themselves. They give it credit where credit's due. But yeah, when something fails, the leader says, it's my fault. I didn't communicate well enough. I didn't execute well enough. That's a good leader. A bad leader blames others for failure and takes credit for success but also human nature. Well, and that goes to that point of uh, leaders acting in the self-interest of their subordinates. Right. Well, I think uh, in, um, in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, uh, God says to Jeremiah, the well-being of your people is your well-being. 
because Jeremiah does not want to go and preach. He, he knows what's coming. There's a war and he's got the worst job possible, which is to go to his own people and say, God's not on your side and you're going to lose horribly. And the only thing that you can do now is repent, accept the punishment, the discipline and be restored. And of course, for his troubles, they throw him down a well because they accuse him of being a traitor and a spy and treasonous. But the point being then that we never, it's, it's like one person said that I was listening to a podcast. We always ask for criticism, but we don't actually want it. And that's our, yeah. ego. that's our ego. And if we can listen to criticism and then recognize where our ego is intruding upon that criticism. And even if the person criticizing us is completely wrong, you can still learn something from that criticism. Maybe it's just learning why you're, uh, you're hurt or you're offended or you're angry that that person was critical of you because usually criticism has at least a, a kernel of truth to it. Mm -hmm. Recognizing something that you're not, but also just recognizing that even if it's just your own ego getting in the way, this is a great opportunity to curb that ego and say, thank you. Thank you for the criticism and then go away and detach and be objective and ask, is there any truth to that? Is there any veracity to that criticism? And ultimately, what can I learn from that? Well, and the, you're precisely correct. Um, this is where we're running into so many problems with uh, the kind of rampant individualism that we find is that you can't accept any criticism whatsoever. Any and all criticism right. is instantly a personal attack. Exactly, yes. Even if it's 100% spot on, delivered, you know, as absolutely diplomatically as possible. Da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we find is uh, we are building a culture of people who are utterly unable to take any responsibility, any, um, should I use the buzzword ownership yeah. of themselves, right. let alone everything around them. Mm -hmm. And this lack of ownership, uh, at least in my mind is causing a huge variety of problems. Right. No, hundred percent. I agree completely. And I think that to your point too, that's why, when I discovered Jocko and discovered extreme ownership, that was, yeah, that was like a, a revelation, a pulling back of this kind of veil over my eyes of saying, oh, a big part of growing up abused is you're a victim, especially as a child. You don't have any control over the physical or verbal abuse you suffer. But once you get out of the house and you continue to perpetuate that victim mentality, that attitude of victimhood, and then you seek out relationships that help perpetuate that victimhood, and of course you're affirming other victims, it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy, so to speak. Or maybe a different way to say it is you get on that treadmill and you just stay on it, and then you complain that you never get anywhere. And the reason is because, uh, and again, being a recovering alcoholic, a big part of sobriety is you've got to take responsibility and say, it's not my daddy that made me an alcoholic. He wasn't there when I was 24 and, and getting you know, uh, blackout drunk. He wasn't there when I stole from my job. He wasn't there when I cheated on my girlfriend. That was me. I did that. And you run from that for so long with that mentality that when you do turn around and say, maybe I should take responsibility, it's, a, it's like we talk about in recovery, 
it's like walking along and eating a candy bar and you throw the wrapper over your shoulder and say, oh, it's just one wrapper. It's not a big deal. And then when you get sober, you turn around and there's a mountain of garbage behind you that you weren't paying attention to because whenever you thought, oh, I wonder if, if there's anything I need to take responsibility for, I wonder if there's anything I need to do, you just met, you self-medicate with alcohol or drugs and you just ignore the problem. And therefore, because of self-medication, your attitude is, well, there's no problem. There's no problem. Everything's fine. And then you get sober and turn around and, oh, there's that mountain, that Mount Everest of garbage that you've been avoiding for those years. And that's why so many people relapse in my experience. It's why I relapsed several times before I finally got serious about it was that's just, it, it's so overwhelming. And that's why AA as a support group, rehab as a support group, this is why any 12-step group, any even book clubs, they work because as we've been talking about, it's a, a group, it's a tribal identity, it's a squad identity. And you get, you get eight, nine, 10 people sitting around in a circle and you're all expressing the same or similar experiences. As I once said to the woman sitting next to me in an AA meeting, I am such a cliche because someone was talking and they could have been, been describing my experience with alcohol and drugs. And I leaned over and said, I'm such a cliche. And she, she laughed, she goes, honey, we're all cliches. That's why we're here. And that's when the light went off. Oh yeah, I'm not a snowflake. I'm not special. We're all here for the same reason. <laughs> and that really, for me, when I was 27, 28 years old, was the turning, was a pivot point, a turning point, a tipping point, as Malcolm Gladwell would say. But it still took me 20 years to walk into that jujitsu academy, that mixed martial arts academy, because it took me that long to get uh, myself straightened away to the point that I could even just go in and pay the bill for membership, let alone train. But, you know, I look at it this way. It took me 27 years from birth to my first sobriety meeting, growing up in that environment and then perpetuating myself. And then it just took me another 20 years to work my way to the point of where I was ready to listen to Jocko say, you need to take ownership of everything in your life and be able to say, okay, I think it's going to be hard. And I think discipline equals freedom is nonsense, but I'll try it because I'm, I'm again, one of those bottoms we talk about in recovery. And sure enough, it turns out the more disciplined you are, the more freedom you have. <laughs> it's crazy, but it's counterintuitive because as you noted, we live in a victim culture. And, and it's just so much more comfortable to not take responsibility and blame others. <laughs> well, and yeah, that's, <clears throat> that's the rub, isn't it? Is, um, it makes us more comfortable to say, well, the, this or that problem is the fault of this outside force. Right. Um, the, the difference, I, I don't know who the guy's name is. I'm horrible with names, but, um, I uh, was watching TV months ago and they had this little vignette on uh, some football player grew up, you know, uh, worst possible circumstances in America that you can imagine. Right. And now he's this super upstanding guy does all this stuff and it's a really good thing. And they're praising him. Mm -hmm. We, despite the culture we have built still recognize when people who ought to be victims as, as this guy, you mm -hmm. know, uh, ought, uh, in our way of thinking yet refused to be one. Right. And now, you know, he, he's making, you know, tons of money 
and turning around and spending copious amounts of his free time helping others and attempting to uh, build up his community and all of these things. He's being hailed as a hero. And it starts with that reversal in his own mind of the victim mentality. You know, he's no longer going to stay there in, uh, I'm assuming it was a ghetto, I don't remember precisely. And instead saying, no, I'm going to go to such and such college. And he got excellent grades, like a 3.5, something like that. And then now he's playing football professionally and and Mm -hmm. all of these things. But again, it all started with that uh, refusal to remain in the victimhood that so many other people continue to live in for whatever reason, uh, primarily because it's, it's easy. Um, you know, I, I've been through those same types of experiences and it is easier. Um, and it always will be, but that's always going to be the difference between someone like myself and the guy who, uh, you know, is running multi-million dollar corporations right now or, uh, you know, what, whatever. Well, I think too, that's the impetus or the motivation for so many folks. Uh, that's why stoicism, I think, has become so popular, which I'm happy about because now I can actually talk to other people <laughs> about stuff that I'm interested in and have been reading for a while. Uh, but the, the, the trajectory of stoic philosophy like Seneca, Marcus Aurelius and others, Epictetus, Plotinus, but also the popularity of podcasts done by veterans like Mike Ritlin, Andy Stumpf, Jocko, um, Dakota Meyer on the Dash, um, and others such as that, that they're, they're coming out of their experience and bringing with them that not only taking responsibility for yourself, not only owning your, your garbage, owning everything in your world, but also what that then means in relation to others and how that translates into that mentality of by taking ownership, by taking responsibility for myself, I am actually making myself available for other people in a way that is, um, it's like I was just reading Marcus Aurelius the other day who he points out, he, he, he asked the question, what's the purpose of life? And the purpose of life, he says, is to be a good person. And then he says, in fact, that's the purpose of all earthly vocations is mm-hmm. to be a good person and help your neighbor. Mm-hmm. And really his point is to be a good person means to help your neighbor, period. It is not being a good person means helping yourself, but rather by helping your neighbor, you will help yourself. And it may not always feel comfortable. It may not always feel good. And you may not have any kind of reciprocation from your neighbor for your help that they may not even say thank you as anyone with kids knows. But nonetheless, it will make you a better person. It'll make you a good, uh, in the way of virtue, a good person. And I think that, you know, even Order of Man and, and other podcasts like that, which is essentially saying, okay, what is masculinity? And what is toxic masculinity an oxymoron? And can you be masculine and be toxic? No, that's the argument. You can't be toxic and masculine because being masculine encapsulates certain virtues and certain traits. Um, that are historically kind of encapsulated in that one word masculinity, but in the present context, that words become politicized and therefore weaponized and it's lost meaning 
you know, it almost becomes like a, a four letter word. And so let's break this down and let's strip it of all of its political baggage and, and um, again, take off the warhead and look at it. What is masculinity? And is it really the politicians and the social justice warriors who have made this word toxic? Or have we simply failed to be men <laughs> and show up? And at the root of that, it is taking personal responsibility and holding yourself accountable and, and allowing yourself to be held accountable, whether you like it or not. And which actually then brings us to the second point of Pressfield, their honor, right? Yes. Is that, okay, fine. Shame is what it is. But then it comes to the point of what is honor? And is it simply a matter of being respected, being an honorable man, an honorable person? Or is there something more to it? And something that comes up in the same section in, in Cyrus then that uh, is this whole question of, for Cyrus's people, stealthiness and using stealth tactics, not necessarily telling the whole truth, it's actually seen as being dishonorable. So when Cyrus proposes that they use stealth, that they use uh, tactics to mislead the enemy and maybe even mislead the allies, and Cyrus's justification is, listen, there's certain things you need to know right now, and then there's certain things you don't, because if I told you my whole plan, you'd say, you're crazy. We're going home. We're going to get slaughtered out there. So in this section entitled stealthiness can be employed with honor. This is what he's working through is his culture says deception, um, not a lie so much as just withholding the whole truth at one time are considered unethical, immoral almost. And he's arguing, mm, is it though? <laughs> so he, uh, Xenophon writes, only if you are likely to gain by the move, said my father. The more I am persuaded of my own superiority and the high morale of my troops, the more I am inclined to stand on my guard and make sure that I have thrown the enemy off balance. For if a leader wants to guarantee success, he has to outwit his opponent at every turn. What exactly do you mean, I asked. You know what I mean, said the king. I have trained you to be as honest as any man who ever lived. But if virtue serves to guide our actions with our friends and allies, every sort of trick can be used against our enemies. And that is why you were taught never to hunt a lion or a bear without some special advantage. Didn't that kind of lesson teach you cunning and deceit? I wouldn't couch it in exactly those terms I pretended to grumble. Yet that's what you were doing when you joined in the hunt, said Cambyses. You were practicing cunning and deceit. Not among men, it's true, but among beasts. We made sure you never turned those tactics against your friends. But we wanted them to help guide your actions when faced with ferocious men who are bellowing for your death. It was the full afternoon of a bright, hot day, and both my father and I paused to drink from our flasks. Then the king said, our unwritten law commands that we teach our children as we teach our servants, simply not to lie. Neither child nor servant is allowed to cheat or be envious. If they do, they are punished. The hope is to make them honest subjects. In the same way, we don't talk to the young about the mysteries of love, for if their passions were ignited, they'd become the slaves of lust. But 
When noble boys come of age, it is time to teach them how to deal with our enemies. And we don't worry that they'll turn violent with their own comrades. <clears throat> That's a very interesting point that he brings up that if we talk to the young men uh, in this context specifically about the mysteries of love, their passions will be ignited. They'll become slaves of lust. Mm -hmm. In the same way, he's talking about this, this usage of uh, guile, essentially on the battlefield, right. and the fact that you don't teach the young men to use these tactics because they're going to turn around and use them against right people who should be their friends. One of <clears throat> the issues I think we're seeing is this um, access to information that the internet has given us is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, we have access to, you know, uh, Xenophon's account of Cyrus and this usage of guile and warfare that can be honorable. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we have kids learning tactics, if you will, that they really have no business using because they have neither the maturity to think through the consequences of these actions, right. nor do they have the ability to actually carry these, these things out, uh, especially when appropriate and properly. So we end up many times kind of cutting off our noses to spite our face. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting thing because I encounter this when you teach kids, teenagers, jujitsu in particular, they see it from the outside and that hormonal handicap that they suffer from at that age, it's all aggression. It's just charge forward and smash and pass. They don't know necessarily the technique and they're not cognizant of the fact that the adults that they roll with are allowing them to get away with this stuff. And they get this false sense of accomplishment, this false sense of, I know what I'm doing and I just passed his guard. I just got an arm bar. And as I was talking to you before we hit record last week in the intro class that I teach, that I co-teach, um, I was rolling after class with a 16 year old and he was going hundred percent and I was getting frustrated because his parents are the type of parents that there's two types of parents that drive me nuts. This is just my own personal thing. One are the parents that drop their kids off at the door and then come back in an hour and pick them up and are not engaged at all. And their kids, at least again, in, in at my academy, those are the kids that are the, that are most in need of parental supervision. And you almost feel like you're babysitting. The other side of the spectrum or the other side of the street is the parents that coach their kids from the, from the side who based on their, their body type and their attitude, know nothing about grappling. And yet, because they watch the UFC or they've watched jujitsu on YouTube, they think they're, they're enlightened. They can actually coach their kids. And so they're coaching their kid and they're egging him on to be super aggressive with me. And so for a split second, I went at 100%. I, I basically swept him with my legs, brought him back into me, rolled over, got on top of him and said, listen, if you want to go 100%, I'll go 100%. But you will lose 100% of the time. Now, let's, let's roll. Let's have fun. And let's work on technique so that you can improve your technique and not rely on being hyper aggressive all the time because it's not going to work at a certain point. 
And that's what we worked on then. And then I encouraged him and let him know, I didn't do that because I was mad at you. I didn't do that to hurt you or to basically drive you away. I did that to check you because you see the tactics, but you don't have a strategy and you need a strategy. The tactics, they evolve. You have to adapt them in the moment. And especially in, in grappling, for example, right? Is that you go, the problem with, with fighting is the other person gets a vote. And so you drill technique. We were doing butterfly sweeps last night, practicing those. You do them during the technique and you're sweeping your partner. And then you do the drill at about 40% and all of a sudden that sweep doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? Because your partner's heavier than you are and he's decided, I don't want you to sweep me. That's kind of the point of the exercise. And so that's the challenge though of, okay, then I've got to figure out what am I doing wrong technique wise? Because if the technique works on leverage, it shouldn't matter how big this guy is or how much he resists me. But to just throw myself at him is going to accomplish nothing. It's the same thing that happened with that kid with me. It's the same thing now happening with me and with my training partner. And to the point then, aggression can cover a lot of sins, so to speak. But at the end of the day, you're going to meet someone who strategically and tactically is just better than you are. And they're going to use that aggression against you. And you're going to destroy yourself. Going back to what we said about that victim mentality is it that is going to destroy you in the end. And those who are savvy, those who are wise, and those who have that experience are going to recognize your weakness, your vulnerability, and they're going to exploit that to their advantage. Again, whether it be in the corporate world, the business world, whether it be in school, whether it be in interpersonal relationships, wherever it is, recognize, as I always teach this, the new students, always attack where they're not. Look at where they're, if they're attacking your upper body, that means they're not thinking about their hips and their legs. So figure out how to attack their hips and legs. Attack where they're not. Be smarter than they are. Well, and the ability to do that starts with yourself. Uh, a good place then to uh, kind of um, <clears throat> think about honor and shame uh, as we've been discussing it and to not only Pressfield's point, but uh, Xenophon's here as well, mm -hmm. is that, that it has to start with yourself. Right. Um, it has to start with that personal ownership. No, I was going to say, too, uh, just as a side note, I was listening to a lecture recently, and the speaker was there, he was discussing Xenophon and the influence of this biography on succeeding generations, proceeding generations. And one of the things he notes is that Machiavelli was highly influenced by this, by Xenophon's biography of Cyrus the Great. And yet Machiavelli seemed to have missed the point. And so when you read The Prince, for example, and then compare it to Cyrus the Great and go, this was influenced by that? How did Machiavelli come to these conclusions by reading Xenophon on Cyrus the Great? Because Cyrus is all about kindness and charity, and making and basically avoiding battle if he can through alliances and being honest and operating out of integrity with virtue. And then you read the prince and you understand then how people who read the prince and didn't read Xenophon, how their politics and their ideology worked itself out. And, you know, actually jumping forward then to kind of wrap this up, the profit from the folly of others really covers this well, I think, where um, uh, Xenophon records this. There's one particular teaching, Cambyses added, that I must impress on you again, for it is the greatest of them all. Remember the lessons of history. 
Remember how often whole peoples have allowed themselves to be persuaded to go to war by quote-unquote wise men and then been utterly destroyed by the very enemy they agreed to attack. Remember how many statesmen have helped raise new leadership to power and then been overthrown by their own protégés. Remember how often leaders have chosen to treat their friends like slaves and then perished in the revolutions caused by their idiotic methods. How many powerful men have craved to dominate the world and by overreaching have lost everything they once possessed. These words pierced my heart. Perhaps God himself was using my father's tongue to warn me against my own ambition. Again, I felt alone. No one knew how much I hoped to accomplish with my army, and I reminded myself that my self-confidence should always ride side by side with a strong sense of humility. I must always be on the lookout for warnings from heaven to temper my desires. Yet, even with the full force of these thoughts in mind, I could not doubt that I was meant to pursue a great destiny. I would proceed with tremendous care, but I would proceed as far as fate would allow me to go. Truly, men often fail to understand their own weaknesses, I said neutrally, and their lack of self-knowledge can bring terrible disasters down on their own heads. Yes, so we must always be on guard against miscalculation. Foresight is not humanity's forte. We lack the vision to detect the best course, concluded my father. But the gods, my son, know everything that the future will bring. If we mortals win their favor, they will send signs to us what we ought to do and what we ought to leave undone. So I was able to take heart again at the words of my father. They sounded like a blessing. And that's the end of section two, advice fit for royalty, which I think actually encapsulates rather well what we've discussed kind of in the second half of this hour. If you lack humility, then the things that you do might come back to destroy you in the end, most likely will come back to destroy you in the end. Because men fail to understand their own weaknesses. And this, I actually, I repeat this almost on a daily basis. We lack the vision to detect the best course. Or as one person, I can't remember who, man plans and God laughs. Is that, yeah, we crave maybe not to dominate the whole world, but we crave to dominate our home. We crave to dominate our work environment. We crave to dominate our relations to our friends and family. Whatever it is, we crave to Mm -hmm. rise through the ranks militarily, uh, advance to the next belt, win the next fight, whatever it might be. We have these cravings. They're inherent to us. In fact, our cravings are essentially why we're inherently violent individually and as in groups. It's because we have cravings, we have desires, there's things we want to accomplish. And yet I think Kim Beesis's point to his son is really well put. We lack the vision to detect the best course. And as a consequence, we often end up complaining and lamenting our lot or fate, as he says, and question where is God or the gods in this? And have I angered God? Is God punishing me for this? Has God turned his face away from me this? Has God abandoned me? Or if I don't believe in God and I believe in my own power and strength and the things that I can measure and touch with my five senses, is it my fault? Is it somebody else's fault? Like, how did this happen? How did I get here? Which goes back to that whole matter of the victim mentality and not taking responsibility. 
Mm-hmm. Well, the reason you got here is because you can set the course, but you don't have the vision to take the best course. And as a consequence, if that doesn't humble you, then I don't know what will. And we see this all the time at the gym. There's people that are eager and there are people that are eager to learn. And the distinction is those who are eager to learn are humble. Or more specifically, they are humbled by the experience. Those who are eager but don't learn are not humbled by the experience. And those are typically the people that I see wash out. They either go too hard and get injured or they become frustrated because, again, going back to your original point um, at the beginning of this conversation, if you're not a part of our group, you're not a part of our group. And there's a brotherhood in martial arts. There's a brotherhood in the military that we, we know this, Band of Brothers. It's literally the title. If you're not a part of that brotherhood, that means I don't trust you. And if I don't trust you, I'm not going to train with you because I'm not going to fight alongside of you. Because I know you're in this for you, but you're not in this for anybody else. And therefore, you're the most dangerous person here right now. And therefore, don't count on me being anywhere near you when the, when the, when the bullets start flying. You know? And that's essentially what Cambyses is saying to Cyrus here. Yeah. yeah. If, if you lack humility, then you probably lack honor. And if you lack honor, you probably don't really care about your troops. Mm-hmm. Because all you care about is conquest and domination. Well, and that lack of honor means you can't be shamed either. Exactly. Exactly. And that, again, that shame is you're not good enough. But you know what? That's okay. Keep coming back. And does that sense of shame ever leave you? Well, this is the point too. Maybe we'll wrap it up with this is we tend to think in, of these terms in monolithic um, terms, essentially, you know, uh, monolithic definitions, shame is bad. But in a tribal society, in a group setting, shame can also be the thing that motivates you because you want to be better. I talk about it this way, is that I, I started martial arts and wanted to be a martial artist because I wanted to get, overcome my fear and learn how to manage my fear and find out who I truly am. But I also wanted to be a better husband and my wife. I wanted to be a better father, a better pastor, a better neighbor, just a better man. And everything that I'd done up to the point of, of starting training didn't do it for me. And so I spent a lot of time in AA meetings, for example, talking about humility, reading about humility, listening to other people talk about humility. But it was like being caught in a current in the ocean when I used to go surfing when I lived in Mexico, which is I didn't realize how strong the ocean current was. And therefore, the harder you swim, the further away from your destination you get. And the more I talked about humility, I felt the further away from true humility I was. And I envied people who were humble. And I wanted it so bad. <laughs> and what I didn't realize until I put myself in a situation to be humbled is that at least for myself, I, I can't find humility on my own. I can't read about it and then have it kind of stick. It's got to be given to me. And that's in a, in a positive sense, that's that shame-based culture. That's why CrossFit's so popular. That's why martial arts is so popular. That's why the, the muster, the, the Echelon Front, the um, conferences that Jocko and his team put on, Leif and all those guys, that's why they're sold out. That's why the Order of Man retreats are sold out, is on our own. We try and figure this stuff out and we just, we get lost. And yet when we're with others, they strengthen us, they encourage us, they teach us, and we learn. And we're humble. and they and they keep us from getting puffed up on our own supply. Exactly. 
Right. Exactly. As again, if you, you know, you smash a white belt because you're a blue belt, guess what? There's a purple belt smiling at you from the other side of the mat going, come here, little fish. Yeah, there's always someone better. There's yep. always someone better. And as soon as you think there's not, that's when you're going to get gobsmacked. That's when you're going to get rolled. And it doesn't matter whether it's in combat, whether it's in interpersonal relationships, whatever I said. And, and we'll talk about this in, in upcoming episodes of the warrior ethos is not restricted to military personnel, soldiery. It's not restricted to the martial arts world, mixed martial arts, MMA. Mm -hmm. To be a warrior, to fight, as Hickson Gracie said, it's, or I think it was Hickson who said it, maybe it was um, Henzo. It, but Hickson Gracie, I think, said, every morning when you get up and put your feet on the floor, like I referenced earlier, it, that's a fight. Because you got to decide to get up and walk. And that's a fight. Breathing is a fight. Because all these things require strength. And they require you to exercise that strength moment to moment. And every one of those moments that you decide to take a step forward, every one of those moments when you decide to take a breath, every one of those moments when you decide, I'm not going to quit, you're getting stronger. And eventually all of those moments add up into one result. You are a better husband and father. You're a better neighbor. You're stronger. You're healthier. Hopefully a more humble person, a more honorable person, a more respectable person. But it, it's not something that happens all at once in some volcanic eruption. It's every single moment that you make that decision to put one foot in front of the other and not fake it till you make it, but just face it and go through it and figure out how to curb your fear and put that in the cage, how to put your ego in check, all of these things. And that for us anyways, I think is why we want to do this podcast if, for ourselves, if nothing else, is mm -hmm. to have this conversation with these folks like Xenophon, like Stephen Pressfield and others that we will get to in, in succeeding episodes is to learn from them as, as Kambisa says to his son, learn from history, learn the lessons of history, and then learn in the present tense how to employ these so that maybe you don't fall into the same traps as your predecessors, but also recognize that when you do fall into those ditches, when you succumb to those things, recognize why. Maybe it was your ego, your, your, your reach overstretched your grasp, whatever it might be. And so, yeah, um, you got anything to add in closing? Yeah. Um, yes, I do. To, <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> no, you're fine. Uh, to reference earlier, you said the candy bar. You eat the one candy bar, you throw the wrapper over your shoulder, and before you know it, you turn around and there's a mountain of wrappers. Right. The temptation with ownership, the temptation with these things is to say, I have to remove this entire mountain today, right now. Right, right. That's impossible. Yeah. You're going to burn out. So I guess what we can end with then is the question of how can you remove one or two wrappers today? Right, right. Exactly. And then what can you do tomorrow? Right. Yes. And small steps. Right. And get outside yourself and go find folks that will help you pick up the garbage. Precisely. Precisely. The, life is a team sport. Right. And the individual, as much as we want to admire the rugged individual, the guy who has survived, you know, 40 years on the top of a mountain somewhere, <laughs> right. he is only surviving. Right. Exactly. And only for himself. And who is he actually helping? Precisely. Nobody. Right. 
So good. I hope that this episode helped you. And thank you so much for giving us your time and, and devoting in your time to listening to this podcast. And if there's anybody that you think we should read in upcoming episodes, please uh, drop by the Warrior Priest um, website. I'll post a link to that in the show notes so you can access us. We're available on Instagram, Facebook. Are we on Twitter? Uh, yes. Yes, we are on Twitter. Good. I think we've nominated your wife in absentia to be our social media rep. <laughs> I, I like it because I have been failing up to this point <laughs> just due to technological illiteracy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but at least for, you can look me up. I'm on, uh, I'm on Instagram most of the time, uh, Donovan Riley, or you can look up the Warrior Priest podcast on Instagram to get updates. And like I said, we'll post this. It'll be on uh, iTunes. Well, if you're listening to this, you must have gotten it on Spotify or iTunes or Anchor mm -hmm. FM. So, uh, but again, yeah, thank you so much uh, for giving us your time and attention. And I hope this helps you. And uh, we'll see you next week for a brand new episode. Peace.